When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find a Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Marcus with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. It's nice to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how are you doing this morning? Doing real good, Casey. Lots going on. Just a little bit. A little bit. So we had the uh, Wednesday had the report come out and just soybeans got throttled. And I guess everybody realized that maybe that wasn't the right thing to do because they said we'll, we'll, we'll buy them all back at the uh, original price. So I guess looking at yes, looking what happened, the backlash from on Thursday from Wednesday's report, I guess, what's your thoughts there? You really have to understand what the USDA tries to do. They're just making up the numbers, Casey. They're just making them up. They have See, no idea what you, the you finally, that's the, that's the most honest thing you've said on this podcast, Sean. <laughs> I've said, been saying this for years. They that's just, they, they that's what it seems idea, like. Yeah. They have an idea of the number they want to come up with. Mm-hmm. So, they don't want to come in with 150 million bushel carryout. That means $18 soybeans. They don't want that. They're trying to get no. inflation down. So you lose 4 million acres, you're in deep, deep trouble. So they go, well, oh, oh my gosh, the demand is just gone. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, it just from what, within 30 days, you just lost all this demand magically after you found out 4 million acres of less planted 
it's just a, it's just completely making the numbers up. Yeah. They decided they were going to keep the numbers around three hundred million. Doesn't mean it's true. It's a balance sheet thing, and and ultimately the market called it. Uh, the market traded it. The speculators traded it, and then they go, yeah, that's nonsense. And then they put the market right back to where it started. Yeah. So you really have to. You just have to take these USDA reports with a grain of salt. The USDA is not to be trusted. They're not reliable with this stuff. If anything, they're always behind the curve. And you know, only Pinocchio might have believed that USDA report on soybeans that our earnings stocks only going to be down a smidgen with four million less acres. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, that's yeah. just a joke. So, so let's call it for what it is. Uh, we have to deal with the USDA. They're, they're there. The markets react. Sometimes they get it right. This was just a made-up number, and we're going to have to obviously look at August weather, like we talked about in your last uh, show, and um, and that will ultimately determine you know what's really going to happen here. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's that was the uh, <clears throat> usually when I've seen, and again, I'm not any kind of expert when it comes to watching commodity markets at all, but typically when you watch something like that where there's a report come in and there's just a huge sell-off and everything just goes in the tank. And the very next day, it all comes back to the exact same place. That, to me, it seems like that's a pretty good indicator that things are not as advertised, and that there's there's something well, there that's it, driving it back. Let me put it this way: Cargill, Archer, Daniels, Midland do not wait for the USDA to tell them what the truth is. I can tell you, they're yeah. not relying on the USDA reports to tell them what the truth is. They know what the truth is. And so when, when a market does what it did in soybeans, when they go down, it comes right back up. They're, they're basically telling you that the USDA's numbers are, are moderately inaccurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I won't say what my grandpa used to say in these kind of situations on, on air. So. No, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, the market oh, knows yeah. the truth. It's, sure. The USDA is yeah. always after the fact. And, and you really think Cargill doesn't have every – piece of intelligence on the ground everywhere in the world knowing exactly sure. what's going on well of course they do so they viewed that opportunity yesterday with the algorithms selling because that's what the algorithms do you know i don't you know i don't know for a fact that they were a buyer on that day but it 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 wouldn't have surprised me that ultimately cargill and those kinds of people said oh my gosh what a great deal we got today to go buy yeah. something because we know that's full of it you know yeah exactly so, yeah yep yeah. yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about dollar um, and the strength of dollar, what you're seeing there. I sent you a text message with, oh, man, looks like what is lost is found, and you came back with some uh, some knowledge that you dropped there about, uh, you know, dollar devaluation and some various cycles that we're going through. Um, previous, The previous, what we saw as far as inflationary issues were COVID-related and printing money, but this is a, we're heading into, into a quote-unquote normal cycle of, of a dollar devaluation and inflationary issues. So talk a little bit about that, Sean. Yeah, I mean, there's an eight-year cycle. Ever since we came off the gold standard in the early 1970s, there's, there's been an eight-year cycle, meaning the dollar rises for eight years and it falls for eight years. It rises for eight years and it falls for eight years. If you run a, put a commodity chart, like the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, over the dollar, when the dollar goes down, commodities go up. And when the dollar goes up, commodities go down. Right. It's It's... It's just, you know, we know that when the dollar is going down, then foreign prices inflate in U.S. dollars and we get to sell a heck of a lot more stuff to everybody else because we become more competitive. This has been going on for as long as commodities have been priced in U.S. dollars. Um, what was unusual is that the cycle we had from 
uh, late 2020 to the top in 22 was not a dollar devaluation cycle. It was just it was a a one incident, you know, a, a one off thing with this COVID thing that came out and the uh, stimulus that was printed that. We had a wave of when we reopened, we just had this wave of demand that overran the market. It, so it was a really unique situation. It was not a normal cyclical move higher in commodities. And now we've had the knockdown. Now we're starting what, you would, as you said, Casey, a more traditional capitals fleeing the U.S. dollar. It's going elsewhere. The dollar's devaluing, and we're getting commodity-related inflation coming back as this dollar is really starting to cave in. What that means is the headline numbers are coming down. I mean, the inflation numbers that the government's putting out is falling. Commodities lead inflation by 12 to 18 months. So the, the so the decline in the inflation rate now is because commodities were falling for 18 months, Casey. Yeah. So the inflation numbers, but but the commodity inflation cycle is now turning back up. The dollar broke a triple bottom this week. Very very significant breakdown in the U.S. dollar. It is now saying that the $8 down cycle, which bottoms in 2026, has now we've, we've now entered the next phase. There's also something called the Benner cycle. Benner was a farmer in the 1800s that put together this very unique set of cycles. I actually showed it when we went to present at your uh uh, present, you know, at your meeting in Denver, mm-hmm. and it, there's a, a a part in there that has always led to a major U.S. dollar devaluation. Um, and 2023 comes up on the Benner cycle as a year to watch for some kind of a major dollar devaluation cycle. This cycle came up in the early 1970s when we came off the gold standard. It came up in the 1930s when we devalued uh, the dollar against gold. Um, it's been a very, very, you know, it, in 1985, when the Plaza Accord kicked in and the five biggest central banks in the world said we have to devalue the U.S. dollar because it's too strong, 2023 is a year that the Benner cycle is suggesting to look for some kind of a an event that p- creates a major one-time U.S. dollar devaluation along with the eight-year cycle is now down. So this breakdown of this major uh support area this week really tells me that we've begun this U.S. dollar devaluation cycle into 2026. 2026, by the way, is the peak in the war cycle, the geopolitical war cycle that is 53.5 years. We peak the, the, the war cycle or the geopolitical cycle peaks every 53.5 years, which is 2026, which is when the dollar is supposed to reach its low point. Everything kind of fits in with these cycles, Casey, and it has a lot to do with why we're, we've been warning about a, a strong inflationary cycle from the back half of 23 into 2026 um, because of all these concurrent cycles kicking in at a time that weather volatility that we've been talking about a lot that we spend a lot of time working on is going to continue to escalate and add fuel to the fire. So I think what you have to start thinking about is this. A 2 billion bushel carryout when the dollar is strong and trending higher may mean $4, $4.5 corn. It, that same fundamental in a declining dollar trend and a dollar devaluation trend could be $6, $6.5. Same fundamentals, much different price. You have to get away from saying, well, because of this carryout, it means this price. 
that has nothing to do with it. It has yeah. to do with the prism that you are filtering the fundamental through to determine the U.S. base price. If you want to look at um, soybean prices in Argentina, because the Argentine peso has been <laughs> in free fall for, for the last five years, it's been going straight up, straight up to record highs, never seen before in the history of the world in Argentina peso dollars. Of course, we're not seeing that here in the U.S., right? right? Everything is based on the currency that you are pricing your commodity in and what you're looking at. And of course, here in the U.S., trading U.S.-based commodities, what we care about is what the dollar prism is telling us. And what the dollar prism is beginning to start to tell us is that the that the filter now coming through the prism is going to inflate the price of commodities relative to fundamentals. Now, if those fundamentals get more bullish or more bearish, it's going to adjust accordingly. But we are, we are, I believe we're in the process of filling the tank, you know, filling the tub with more water where all boats will rise. Some will rise faster than others, but it's an overall repricing of commodities to factor in a dollar inflationary devaluation cycle that once it gets going, Casey, these aren't like a couple of months. These are like a couple of years of this kind of significant devaluation before you kind of reach a crescendo and might reach a, a, a peak in that kind of inflationary cycle. So, so this to me says we're about ready to enter phase two of this you know, decade-long move higher in overall commodities. The first one was driven by COVID and overstimulus. This one is going to be driven by dollar devaluation. And then, of course, you know, Mother Nature, being what it is, is going to continue to, at time, just throw the lighter fluid on it and, and fan the flame out over time. And that's what we have to keep an eye on, that in an environment of dollar devaluation, this fanning of the weather can really get commodities going because the capital you know is going to want to you know is going to want to buy commodities to protect against inflation it's it's a it's a perfect storm when you get both coming together at the same time gotcha okay all right one other thing i saw this morning that kind of piqued my interest a little bit because we talk about the wheat to right rate wheat to rice ratio wow uh every <laughs> every so often on here and i saw on here that that india is uh toying with the idea of banning all rice um, exports out of the country. So looking at the situation that we're in right now, as tight as wheat is around the world and as tight as rice is, for that matter, <clears throat> around the world, what's that mean for those two markets? India has been a big, big uh, forecast for us. We've been talking about this all through the winter time in our presentations. We've been talking yes, about it here. That, um, that last – that India had this unusual – seven-year run of unbelievably good weather like it's never happened before and they got accustomed to selling to becoming in many markets the number one exporter that people were, that the world relies on to keep themselves out of trouble then last year we had uh some weather volatility out of normalcy and they had crops that were just a little you know they weren't terrible but they were just a little bit off and they partially reduced exports in rice. They partially reduced exports in wheat, partially reduced exports in cotton, in sugar. They're importing milk because of problems with milk production, lack of feed. This year and next year, we're dealing with more of an El Nino pattern, which means that the production shortfalls are going to be much more substantial. And if they were already partially reducing exports 
last year on modest shortfalls. This year, if they're going to have more significant shortfalls, then they're probably going to have to take exports down, you know, in some cases completely down, or in some cases maybe three quarters of the way down. And if the world isn't, you know, in many of these markets, cases, there's no one to replace that kind of loss. Just to give an example, they exported 18 to 20 million metric tons of rice in the last year. The number one exporter in the world of rice times two above anyone above the next largest country, which is Thailand. If they follow through and they just say no more exports and we lose 18 million metric, metric tons of exports, we need two Thailands to overcome that. It doesn't exist. Wow. Yeah, It does not exist. Now we'll see how serious they are and, you know, Governments do a lot of different things. But what I'm saying is, is that we believe, you know, everyone's looking at China to save the world and save commodities and bring the demand back. And we've been accustomed to that because since 2000, they've been the main driver for demand for commodities, whether it's copper or it's corn or it's soybeans or it's cotton. We believe that we're transitioning, that India is now going to be the main driver for markets, meaning their economy is growing the fastest. They have the best demographics. Um, and, uh, and, and when you go from the largest exporter in the world of many markets to now becoming no exporter or even becoming a net importer, that is a tectonic shift. The last time we saw something like that was when China came onto the scene in the early 2000s and just kind of totally changed the complexion. It looks to me like we get on the other side of African swine fever in China later this year, as we've been talking about. And China says, oh, shoot, we need to buy some more grain. We need to buy some more you know, stuff. And they start stimulating their economy like it looks like they're going to do. It looks to me like we could have both India and China buying simultaneously for the first time in history in commodities. At a time that weather volatility continues to be off the rails and it's going to continue to, to be that way, it really sets up, you know, a, a, a very um, unusual situation for the next several years because the, the market is very aware of China. I don't think anyone is really putting together what it means for India to be offline with exports and potentially becoming an importer of some key commodities, including Ad commodities. It's, it would be a, a real dramatic change of guard. And the way we're looking at it, if India is going to continue to grow, if they're going to become, you know, a major global economy, they're going to be a permanent net importer, Casey. Yeah. There's no way they can grow the amount of food and the amount of commodities that they need with a country as big as they are, with the amount of people they have, with the kind of ground that they have. There's no way they're going to be able to do it. They're going to be becoming a ever-increasing permanent net importer of commodities and it's it's possible we may be seeing that inflection point happen right now like you look back and say this was the moment that that shifted and we never looked back just like in 2000s when china became that really big net importer of ag and we never looked back that was like the moment of truth that turned the tide in supply demand equation on the global food chain i really feel india is the one to watch it's the it's the sleeper. It's, a, it's, it's something that really the market isn't really paying as much attention to as I think they ought to. Um, but, you know, this rice situation, 
and the wheat situation, you know, in terms of they really are serious about stopping those exports because of their worries over future food production in the country because of El Nino and other things, you know, boy, that, that you know, people are going to start paying attention to that, Casey. You can't, no. you know, in Asia, <clears throat> I can tell you, if you look at Asian rice prices, they're going parabolically higher. Um, they don't do, typically do that. The last time we actually had an Asian – remember, it's a cash market in Asia. There's no futures market. There's no algorithms. There's no speculators. There's no funny business. It's a cash market, right? Um, last time we had Asia get into a, uh, a tailspin – I mean a, a, a shortage like this was 07, 08. Um, and it looks to me like this is you know, we're, this is the first time since 07, 08 that we're actually developing a serious Asian – rice shortage. And by the way, remember last year, China had a 500 year drought in Southern China that is starting to show itself in terms of what that means. And, you know, they're, uh, China is buying rice like we've never seen before. Um, and when I look at the weather now in Southern China, hot and dry, not as bad as last year. I, I want to be very clear. It's not a 500 year drought, but it's not, it's not great. They're going to have another short crop at, at a time that in, what I'm trying to say is human-consumed food, which rice and things like spring wheat um, and KC wheat, which are mainly consumed by humans, this is a big story. If you run out of corn, you kill the animals. Not that I'm – you know, that, that, that's an exciting proposition. But, it, you know, if, if you run out of human-consumed food, Casey, people get very, very angry. And they go on civil unrest, and they go through yep. revolutions, and they and they, <clears throat> and they blame the people in office for why they can't feed their families and they're starving to death. Mm-hmm. You know, if a cow starves to death, you know, no, 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 you know, it's it's a, it's a just it's a different threshold of issue from a geopolitical standpoint. So not only does this have huge ramifications from a humanitarian standpoint, this has huge ramifications from a geopolitical standpoint. What it means for governments for for geopolitical unrest. And 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 you know, and all that tends to be inflationary when you start to, to get those things going because those who don't have it, you know, t- historically have gone to war to get it from those that do have it if they are not willing to sell it to them. So I'm I'm not trying to paint this crazy nasty picture, but but the, but history is pretty clear about food leading to escalating geopolitical unrest. 53.5 year cycle comes into 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 view in 2026. I'm wondering if this food escalation of human consumed food shortages is part of that geopolitical cycle that creates that geopolitical unrest and creates that peak in the cycle in 2026. It's all these things are kind of what you look for as these cycles repeat over and over again throughout history. Yeah. Okay. All right, Sean, good place to stop. You know, last time I saw something like this where there was a, uh, a shortage in, in supply was, was 2012, and you saw it happen there with the Arab Spring and those kind of things. I mean, that's the same yes. correlators that are coming into play here. So you could see something like that again pop up if, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, people really don't care too much about anything as long as their basic needs are met. And when you're when they're hungry and their kids are hungry, it tends to get them fired up a little bit. So. <clears throat> Think of it this way, Casey. You know, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not. I don't think it's it's a uh, hugely uh, brilliant point on my part to say that. You know, when you when the Middle Eastern countries that live in fairly dry climates who can't really produce a lot of food who tend to buy 
or import most of their food, like rice and wheat. Um, if those countries, you know, get into a pinch on this, where the, you know they produce a lot of crude oil and a lot of energy, and if there's a lot of unrest, then there's a lot of worry about energy production, energy, yep. you know, and, and 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 then then the whole energy side of the equation starts to fire up, and 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 that's a and that's an additional element to the inflationary cycle that if a such an important region for energy production is going in civil unrest then all bets are off about what production and exports look like and access to energy and that sort of thing you know and then you have you know potential you know, remember it was a few years back that's uh i forget who bombed a refinery in uh saudi arabia mm-hmm. and we had a brief spike in energy price you know those kinds of things could happen again when people get very angry they're going to attack those that have versus those that have not. So definitely a lot to pay attention to, but I do think that um, the U S dollar devaluation and India uh, becoming a potentially not an exporter and potentially net importer are two long-term cycles here, Casey, that really bear watching. And I think are the basis for finally turning this 18 month correction commodities around and to go the other way. Right on. Okay. All right, Sean. Good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what you're doing over at Hackett Financial. What's the best way to do that? Uh, our website is Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We also have a Twitter page at Faradex11. We also have a LinkedIn page on there where we, you know, we're not habitual posters, but from time to time we will put some information on there that go over our work, our cycles, and our forecast to see if what we do, you know, might be of value to your listeners. Right on. And where are my, uh, Pink flamingo shirt for South Florida today, just so you know. Okay, <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> when when my wife was dressing me this morning, she uh, she pulled this one out. So <clears throat> right on. All right, Sean, appreciate you being the podcast man. Thanks, Casey. All right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the YouTube channel over at the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related and everything, um, all the information for the Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee, September 11th through the 13th is all up there on the website. If you need more information, send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. I'll make sure to get that back to you. If you want to take advantage of the $50 discount for your registration fee from the folks over at Axon, make sure you do that ASAP as that is getting full real quick. So if you want to do that uh, and we just go ahead and register, and you'll be there. If not, you need some more information about it, again, send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. If you like what we're doing here at the Moving Iron Podcast, go over to the YouTube channel and subscribe and you know, give me a review on all, all the places that you listen to it at. That, that sends everything to the top and more people can listen to it and the message gets out there further. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour. We're Sean Hackett. Let's go some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. 
TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hard work. 